Greetings, fellow Earthlings. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of And Another Thing with Dave. I want to thank all of our listeners from all over the world. Please do subscribe and share if you're not already. All right, let's get into it. Wonderful. How are you, Kimberly? Mm -hmm. uh, my name, my first name is Nick. Kimberly is oh, okay. my middle name. Um, Excellent. But I had to use a slight pseudonym in some of the tabloid media when they were writing stories about me. So that's where the confusion comes from. <laughs> there we go. Well, let me correct yeah. myself then. How are you doing, Nick? That's okay. Yes, I'm doing lovely. Shall I call you Dave? Is Dave best? Perfect. Brilliant. That you is have perfection. Been a busy man. You've been very busy, haven't you? I saw you various times today. Yep, yep. Been uh, it's been a busy week. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Okay. Been... Um, I don't know if you had a chance to look at um any of the Instagram stuff, but actually, it might be refreshing if you haven't, because that may be the point of view that other people that are listening want, which is the complete unknown. Um, but I wondered if you could maybe um summarize a little bit of what happened last week with um with our friend spence um before i start right. and then just to explain obviously i i constantly have this bizarre sort of laryngitis and a slight chest infection i get slightly breathy when i'm talking a lot uh, none of <clears> which <throat> is entirely painful and i've taken some medication half an hour ago to in preparation <laughs> um but if you oh, could just sort of interject and give me a little break while I'm telling the upfront story um that would be great <laughs> absolutely absolutely um yeah so uh you know last week um talked with Spencer a gentleman here in the U.S. who had a horrible experience with COVID-19 he you know he survived he's um he, I believe he did lose permanent hearing in one ear, but um, other than that, he appears to be back to um, normal health with the exception of um, still experiencing fatigue. Um, but it was a harrowing story that, you know, he just, it, out of nowhere, he started losing his vision, his hearing, it passed out. And, you know, and he was somewhat conscious. I think I remember him saying that he was conscious and to remember his roommates or friends, I forget who it was, carrying him uh, and taking him to the hospital. And like he could hear doctors and stuff, but he couldn't move. Um, so just really freaky experience. He had no idea what was happening. The doctors had no experience. Luckily, he had a doctor who was very curious and was paying attention to what was going on in the world news as far as health goes. And he started hearing about this thing, you know, COVID before it, it was here. He said, you know, before it was popular here, he said, Hey, I, you know, I just read about this thing that's going on over in, in China and a couple other places. I think that might be what you have. So yeah, what a, what a scary thing to experience. I can only imagine, you know? Yeah. And Spence, is one of the few people I've spoken to in the past, well, 12, 13 months, really, who actually had um, the illness, who got COVID very early. He got it the same time as me in December 2019, which, mm. as you can probably recall, is uh, going back. It, it's, you know, something that was completely denied at the time in sort of February, March 2020, when it started to appear obviously across China initially, but then in Italy, um, across various places in Europe and uh, in the States. Um, it was really at that time quite um, bizarre that it was a formal sort of unanimous decision. I don't know at what level, but certainly at the World Health Organization, the WHO level, that COVID had not existed before we learned about it. Um, well, late January, was it, when the um, the Wuhan Institute put out the genome sequencing? I think they mm -hmm. shared some of the details in sort of mid-late January, but certainly there was absolutely no 
acknowledgement or even consideration that the virus had been around prior to that. Right, right. Yeah, I, I, I uh, did a little research and found the same thing uh, way back. Um, and yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, so we were told that it, you know, and I'm not sure that the US media was just horrible about it originally and the you know our government hasn't really <laughs> hasn't been on it they i guess they're they're moving swiftly now finally but um yeah leaves a lot of room to be improved when did the us actually first shut down anything or do anything of any significance i mean it, it's difficult for me because obviously i was quite ill through most of early january and and i would only have seen you know some of the things happening in the uk in terms of the timeline i mean looking back can you update me what what was the us reaction what was the timing on it i'd have to google it i'm away from my computer just for a few minutes here but um but as far as my memory goes i believe it was april before we started getting any closures of any kind wow april but i mean you know in italy i remember some horrid vivid scenes of people dying so rapidly in italy before the resources were up and running and if if you recall mm. you know there was there was a worldwide lack of ventilators of ppe yeah. um of you know doctors and nurses even of you know horrible to say but of morgues i remember vividly watching these sort of uh, pop-up morgues, horrible, horrible terminology. But I remember right. in March, Drive through, yeah. because the UK locked down, I think about the 20th of March, um, that towards the end of March, I remember seeing mass graves in Italy on the television. And I remember that horror. Um, it almost took me back when I was a child watching those uh, horrid um, nuclear films about if a nuclear bomb went off, this is what you do. Um, right. And seeing mass graves in Italy, I remember the horror that it struck in me when I saw that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it was, um, I don't know, part of me thought, well, I don't want to go into you know what I think and this and that because that I that I could go down a slippery slope there, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's really no explanation as as to why we acted so slowly over on this side. Yeah, of the let's not let's not get into the uh, the whole politics of it yet. Yeah. Um, what I, I'm very grateful, um, Dave, because uh, you've given me an opportunity to talk openly, which over the past 12, 14 months in the UK. Um, I've been in pretty much every national newspaper in the UK. I've been regularly on the BBC, uh, ITV, Channel 4, Channel 5, Sky Television. Um, over the last 12 months or so, as it's become uh, more accepted and thankfully, you know, now completely acknowledged that not only can people catch the virus, but some people whilst they might not have the devastating early panic of being rushed into hospital, struggling to breathe and put on ventilators, that some people have a much longer term battle with the illness that leaves you with, uh, you know, irreparable damage. Um, and the biggest problem, as I, you know, recall today, as I sit here today, is that we, you know, worldwide, we don't have any definitive answers on long COVID. We do not know how to cure it. We do not know exactly what it is. Even, you know, the best scientists, the best medical brains in the world do not yet fully understand it. And we have no end date. So there are, you know, many people that caught it in February, March and are still poorly, but there are several people who've made a recovery. So, you know, we have to look at the positive side that there have been recoveries. Um, but in May, I would say, to my knowledge, and, and I'm part of a group that was started very early in the UK that became the Long COVID Support Group. Um, mm -hmm. If anyone wants to know more about that, it's longcovid.org. We have now, we went from, you know, sort of 5,000 people in April of last year. We've now got almost 40,000 people 
of which maybe 10% could say the fully recovered. Um, but as fast as people are fully recovered and able to sort of move on from the group, because of the huge spike and the rebuild of, uh, you know, the very fast replicating virus and also the variants that have arrived, we've now got more people entering the long COVID community than than ever. So it's actually as quickly as people can recover, the rate of people getting ill and having long COVID is is several times quicker, several hundred percent times quicker. Um, and in the US, which is thankfully for me, one of the best resources I had in the early days were some very, very amenable scientists and clever brains in the US. Um, the terminology used was long haulers and mm. long tail, which I don't know. Where did that long tail come from? Does that ring any bells with you? No, not at all. Just that maybe, you know, the, uh, what it's hinting at is that there's going to be a long trail of symptoms that may or may not go away. Yeah. So um, in let's just get to the whole terminology. So I use and reference the same um, wording throughout. Um, because this is an international thing, clearly, it's not just the US and the UK or maybe parts of Europe where we've got people with long COVID. Uh, there are thousands of people, you know, across China. There are millions of people worldwide. Uh, we know that over two million people, sadly, have died from COVID. Um, if we look at the total amount of people that are infected by COVID, the understanding in the scientific community is that one in 20 of everybody that is infected will find legacy illness and problems for at least 30 days and that one in 10 will go on to have problems for at least 90 days and probably a lot more and that we don't we can't say much more than that because literally the, the statistics aren't there. Uh, it's one of our right. frustrations that we can't count it. Luckily in the UK, though, we now have a figure of 390,000 people that has been presented to our parliament in the UK in terms of the numbers we are currently look at who are registered with a family doctor as having long COVID. Mm. Dave, do you want to take these messages as they come? I'm going to let you control it before I start the story as such. Sure, sure. Um, I just wanted to, I'll get to the listeners in just one second. I want to give a shout out to whoever's here in the room real quick. And then I found, uh, I did, pulled up a website and I found the date. Um, so it looks like uh, March 19th, California issued, issued a statewide stay at home order. Um, Looks like we've got Oxford Champion in the house here, Alex Large, Aries the Great, Cosmic Capers, Voiceover Guy, Index, the Bodester, or the Bodster, not sure. Only Love, Smoky Oaky, Shahonic Buttermilk, Tsunami 33, and Maudry. How are you folks doing? Thanks for coming through. Yeah, let's go ahead, check out the messages here, see if people have any questions for you. I'll hit the first one. Somebody told me that it's good to alternate, that it helps the algorithm of stereo. So um, yes, actually, lady, ladies that. first, okay. why don't you go ahead okay. and hit the first one? Hello, Miss Moneypenny. How are you doing, Miss Moneypenny? Another thing. Whatever. <laughs> Hi, voice of the guy. I always love your voice. I think I could just play those messages just to listen to your voice. Thank you for your support. Thank you for coming in the room. I haven't started telling the story that will be a bit of a long story. So I'm just really glad to have you here. So hang on here. Please yeah. hit the button that will create lots of little hands uh, because that helps the algorithm. I would like to get as many people in here more for the point that I think it has to be a point of education that I want to stop anybody going through what has changed my life irreparably negatively. I do not want people to go through what myself and Spencer, who's also on the stereo and others have gone through. And I know there are ways that by educating, we can stop this happening. So please spread the word, please. Yeah, and voiceover guy, hey, glad you love my tagline. Thank you. Have you had the vaccination? 
Hi, Alex. Um, I haven't had the vaccination yet. In the UK, we have vaccinated over 17 and a half million people, which I think is a bit of a record. Um, it's being done by age blocks. Um, luckily, um, I'm not in my 80s, 70s, 60s, <laughs> so I'm still on a list. I have been invited. Um, I'd rather not go into the detail of it now, but I think I will be delaying my decision to take it on health grounds. Okay. Sense to me. You sound like you're fucking dizzy, Blair. I think we'll ignore that one. Your turn. <laughs> yeah. Are you fucking dizzy? You sound fucking. Bye bye. Yes. So I just read that the Queen has taken the vaccine. So, yay, Queen. May you live long and prosper. Vaccine safe people. Go ahead and take it. Nothing will happen to you. It'll be all fine. You'll get cancer far too quicker from your microwave than from this vaccine. You probably won't get the cancer from this vaccine. Hi, Aries. Um, I know there's uh, some offense in the, the latter part of, of that message, but I would say even if you are somebody who has a greatly sceptical attitude towards the virus and the way it's being dealt with and the politics, I share a lot of that questioning and scepticism, and I'm disappointed by a lot of the reactions to it. I still um, am keen to hear those views as long as they can be discussed in a professional, substantiated way and there's some element of uh, closure behind them and we can move on from them. Yes, the Queen's got the vaccine. Unfortunately, there's been a very negative reaction in the last 24 hours in the UK because although it's very positive the Queen has had the vaccine and obviously her husband has had the vaccine, sadly he's been in hospital now for seven days. Nothing to do with the vaccine, we're told. Something to do with a bladder infection. They're both 98, 99 years old. and They're doing very well. But after having the vaccine, the Queen actually spoke out and said everybody should have the vaccine. Now, there's been quite a negative hmm, reaction to that because uh, the idea of somebody telling you you have to have the vaccine is obviously something that, you know, is, is not popular, and I think rightly so. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I feel the same way about that as I do about abortion. Um, it should be a person's choice, you know? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, shall I begin? Um, it's such a long story. I, I don't know how much to pray for it, but please, Dave, I'll take your guidance if you can stop me and tell me where to go with it. Um, okay, so just a bit of background. Um, yeah. In 2019, um, I got divorced from a nine, ten-year relationship um, in the sort of August, September period of 2019. Um, I was very happy about that because I should have done it a long time ago. I, I was being badly treated and I was in a very divisive, difficult relationship. So I mm. was quite happy and quite confident and I enjoy sports to the extent of uh, motorsport I love. Um, I go for uh, long rides on a motorbike across the Cotswolds in England, which is beautiful. Um, I'm not particularly sort of active. I don't run into a gym anymore, but I do take uh, my two lovely dogs on long walks across the Cotswolds. And so I was fairly active. Um, you know, I'm fairly slim. I've got low BMI. Um, and, and for my age, uh, you know, I, I act about 15 years younger than I am in many ways. So it got to sort of November, December of 2019. My final decree absolute came through and I had pre-booked a nine night stay in St. Lucia for the Christmas period of 2019 coming on 20. Uh, obviously, I'd had a divorce by then. So I substituted my horrible ex with uh, a, a young girlfriend of mine, 26 year old sort of mad party animal. 
Um, and her and I <laughs> were going off to St. Lucia basically to sort of celebrate a year of great horrid discomfort and stress and getting rid of the ex-husband and sort of starting anew. In my head, the idea was go to St. Lucia, come back refreshed and full of beans and energy and then start again a whole new life, really, of freedom and, you know, entrepreneurialism. Um, sure. And I've been very successful in my career from the age of... Uh, sort of uh, 2021 when I came out of university with a first uh, a two-bond degree in economics uh, politics I was running a new radio station I created at university I was running a new newspaper I was very journalistic in the media I'd done a fair bit of sort of tv and radio here and there and then I'd gone into investment banking um, in the city uh, in my 20s I'd started up a company when I was 24 I'd had two or three companies by the time I was you know sort of mid-30s I'd been a director of some big dot-com some big fintech companies you know so I'd been wow. a really successful person I'd worked really hard and then yeah. I'd relocated out of the city, out of London in 2000. And I now live in in the country, generally, you know, in, in Cheltenham. And was a nice atmosphere and a nice environment. And it has come to that time where I thought after the divorce, I can sort of settle down and do stuff I like and, you know, do stuff I want to do. Um, sure. However, the night before we were flying to St. Lucia, we travelled to Gatwick Airport, which is about three hours from where we live. And we were staying over at the airport in preparation for flying out the following morning. Um, when we arrived at the airport, um, there were a lot of people milling around, as, as always. And there was a lot of um, Oriental people in that mix. In fact, there was a quite heavily um, proportion of Oriental people. But we knew it was Chinese New Year um, coming up. Um, and there'd been some flights that come from Wuhan direct into London Gatwick Airport. Um, oh, wow. And at the time, obviously, nobody, you know, knew, there was no suspicion of anything. Nobody, nobody right. other than maybe the scientific community knew anything. So I was simply right. at an airport, a lot of people getting off airplanes. I stayed in the hotel um, within the airport with a lot of these uh, Oriental people and a lot of other people, um, thought nothing of it, went through security the following morning, got on my aeroplane, my 747 or whatever it was, flew to St. Lucia, um, everything absolutely dandy. And that was the 23rd of December. Now, on the 25th of December, Christmas Day, beautiful beach in St. Lucia, fantastic, sat down for Christmas lunch, couldn't taste anything. I could not taste anything. And with the joke, wow. looking back at it, I was on Just two five days star, later. Wow. Caribbean hotel, two days after flying. And I actually went up to one of the staff and said, I'm sorry, could I possibly have some salt? And could I have some ketchup? Could I have some mayonnaise? I had no taste at all, but no idea. I mean, I just thought the food was tasteless. And people right, right. on my table and around me started laughing and, you know, sort of taking the food out of me and saying, well, you idiot, it's lovely. This food is amazing. It's stunning. And I just thought, well, what are they talking about? It's bland. I can't taste anything. Um, so in, you know, in hindsight, that was the first sign, Christmas Day 2019. Um, wow. Now, you know, that night I celebrated as I normally would. And the following day, Boxing Day, well, I was sort of OK. I relaxed because obviously um, that was the thing to do. But in the evening, the 26th, I was feeling really lethargic and just sort of wiped out thinking, well, I've obviously overdone it. The jet lag's caught up. You know, I've been drinking a little bit. Um, you know, I'll just relax. So the 27th came and the girl that I've been traveling with came running up to me and said, gosh, have you heard? Uh, Boris Johnson's arrived in St. Lucia at the airport, which was literally a few minutes from where we were at the time. And uh, our prime minister, Boris Johnson, out of the blue and unbeknown to anybody, had suddenly arrived at St. Lucia at the airport I'd arrived at on <laughs> the same aeroplane that I'd been travelling in a few days earlier, and at the time thought nothing of it. Oh, that's weird, our Prime Minister following us around, and we joked about it. Um, right. That evening, the 27th, I complained to my friend, I was sitting on the balcony at about five o'clock to watch the sunset, and I said, I'm bloody freezing. I said, isn't it cold? It's absolutely boiling. And at that point, I went from, you know, four or five o'clock to seven or eight o'clock, into the deepest, fastest, 
hot, feverish, sweat, chills, dramatically quickly that I've ever experienced. I was chattering, wow. my teeth were chattering, my body was tremoring and my hands were shaking. I felt freezing. I literally went into the bedroom of the place we were staying, took blankets out, wrapped myself up in them. But at the same time, I was sweating profusely. A headache was coming over me. I couldn't stand the sun or even the daylight of the sunset that was coming through. Uh, I put sunglasses on, that didn't work. So eventually I went in inside. And from that evening, from the evening of the 27th until the 1st of January, which is when my holiday ended, I was indoors in the bedroom of a hotel in St. Lucia. And I went from having these boiling hot sweats, this ferociously intense headache, migraine type headache, and I've never had migraine in my life. Photosensitivity, I couldn't look at light. Even when a door opened, I couldn't stand the light, the pain in my eyes. My eyes then got this pink eye. They were pink and sensitive and sort of um, they became slightly infected. My lower back was intensely painful. Um, I wasn't uh, able to eat anything. I couldn't eat anything, but I was intensely um, dehydrated. So I was drinking lots and lots and lots of water um, but I did not have the strength to move four meters from a bed to an ensuite bathroom. I was crawling on my hands and knees four or five times a day between waking up. I was basically flat out fast asleep in a lot of pain. Luckily, I had some Advil or ibuprofen with me. I was dosing those. I managed to borrow some cocodamol that my friend got off another guest. The pain was agony. My lower back was agony and my breathing oh my became really difficult. I didn't develop the dry cough instantly, but I was gasping and I felt at the time it must be the air conditioning. It must be dry. So I turned the air conditioning off, but I was, <gasps> you know, gasping and wheezing um, wow. and generally just feeling panicked and in pain. Yeah. And all I could do was try and knock myself out with whatever painkillers I could get. The bar staff were sending rum to my room, <laughs> which was yeah. helping. And I was knocked out, fast asleep, in pain, not really eating anything. My friend occasionally bought me a bit of fruit or a few biscuits. And I was like that for pretty much most of the holiday, um, wiped out. The staff came to me and offered doctors and things at extreme costs. Now, I've been to St. Lucia 30 times, loads, which I refused the doctors. I knew it was some sort of virally thing, but it was nothing like any flu I'd had. And then right. one of the ladies who was a former nurse said, it's swine flu. It's H1N1. You've got swine flu. Now, to me, that sounded plausible because it wasn't something I'd had and it was much more intense. So I sort of texted back. I was on my social media saying, oh, my God, you'll never guess. I'm in St. Lucia with swine flu. Um, so it got to that. And it got to the day when we were flying back. And I thought, I'm not going to be allowed on the aeroplane because I looked like death. My skin was pale gray. I hadn't eaten. I was dehydrated. I'd lost a lot of weight. I was barely able to stand up without pain. Um, but I knew I had to pull a fast one to get on the plane to be allowed to get back to the UK. Um, right. So basically, I you know, took a hell of a lot of Barocca and vitamins and drank lots of juice and really made myself eat, got on the plane, flew back and arrived at Gatwick on the early morning of the 2nd of January, which at this point, I don't think nobody, I don't think anybody had heard of the virus, had they? Uh, some of it's a bit blurry to me now understandably uh, so yeah so 2nd of January I get collected with my girlfriend from London Gatwick taken home and almost in a relief of thank goodness I'm home I felt a little bit better I felt a bit elevated I thought well thank goodness I'm home I feel a bit better for two days and so I invited some friends around who I'd missed over Christmas friends came around all of them got very ill all of them within two or three days or three or four days actually of coming around for a little home party at my place, started coughing, spluttering, struggling, breathing, 
complaining they were sick. They were all blaming me and saying they had swine flu because clearly that's what I thought I had at the time. And one Mm -hmm. of them who was in his 50s was quite seriously poorly and was taken into hospital thinking he'd had flu and pneumonia. Um, So I basically wiped out most of my friends within a week of getting back to the UK. Go and see the GP, but obviously I must be infectious with H1N1. So I phoned my GP and they said, No, don't come anywhere near us uh, if you've got swine flu. Wait 10 days. So it was actually the 15th of January I first saw a doctor. I walked into the doctor's surgery and the doctor said, Oh, can you um can you stay out and come back at six o'clock when there's nobody here? Because there are some, you know, infections around and we don't want anybody. So literally, he jokingly said, I'll put my hazmat on. (laughs) The irony of it, looking back at it. So the doctor saw me and said, you've got a viral, post-viral infection. You've obviously had this swine flu. I'll take loads of blood tests, blah, blah, blah. So moving forward, by end of January, literally every day was a new um, symptom. I got Mm. enveloped in a huge body rash, my whole body, my face first, then my arms, my chest, my back, uh, huge, like a chicken box type type rash. My joints started becoming so painful and swollen and going a sort of deep purple color. Uh, My breathing became more difficult and really sharp pains like somebody was literally knifing me particularly in my lower back sort of where the kidneys are they found out i'd got a kidney infection i'd got a liver infection i'd got a um oh it's called in in the face uh, a, a, an infection of my sinuses i'd got an infection of my salivary glands it was as though my whole body was carrying all these infections literally I was one great big infectious thing. Um, so they fed me with some antibiotics and I'm allergic to penicillin, so I had others. And they sent me home and said, don't come near us. Um, the results of the blood test came back very unusual and abnormal. Um, lots of white blood cells, which are used to fight viruses, but also some strange paraproteins. And at that time, this was sort of you know late January, mid-February, my GP was quite concerned because... The sort of spike proteins, um, the IgG, the IgM and the IgA that are tested came up to indicate a type of myeloma, a type of blood cancer, which was quite a shock. But to me, it explained why I was so ill, because nothing else could explain how ill I felt. So my GP looked at me quite seriously and said, you know, we found Kappa, Lambda, we found M-Spike, we found all these things that I'd known in my head because I've always been quite medically, uh, you know, sort of clever. Um, I knew were associated with cancer. And obviously I was concerned, very concerned. So, you know, I phoned my father and my brother, my only two real close living relatives, and sort of said, we don't know what's going on, I'm very ill, and it might be this type of myeloma, blood cancer, or leukemia, or lymphoma, all of which had been mentioned. Um, And I was just given steroids to bring down, you know, swelling and help me breathe. I was given painkillers. And then we were going into the end of February, early March, and the virus appeared on the television. Wuhan had arrived. Everybody in Wuhan was starting to get ill. Wuhan was being locked down. And I literally had one of those light bulb moments. I looked, I saw the Wuhan people. I saw their rashes, their joints. I saw them coughing. I saw them grabbing their chest and I saw them wheezing. And I saw that they had lost their taste and their smell just like I had done. And then that real scary, bloody light bulb moment in my head went. And I thought, how the hell? Surely it's not possible. But I think I might have COVID. (laughs) Wow, what a moment that must have been, huh? Wow. I want to mention, welcome a couple new people. We got uh, got some new people in the room here. Cosmic Capers, Shawnee777, Andrew Manning. I'm going to be honest, 420 guy, Zancia, L-COVID. Oh, that's hilarious. Their name's Um, (laughs) L-COVID. 
Mulanthi dude, Sam the Wolf. I'm going to be honest. Thank you, people, for being here. Much appreciated. Could be anywhere, and you're here right now. If you enjoy what we're talking about, please clap it up. Um, that triggers the algorithm to send more people to the conversation. And, you know, more people makes for a more dynamic conversation. So appreciate you all. Um, let's keep it positive and uh, please drop a follow on Ms. Money Penny and myself. And, um, well, we got one message. Let's hear that and then let's get back to the story. Do you think you can defeat me? And if you do, tell me what you can do to defeat me because like, I know no one can defeat me because obviously I'm just like, shut up, isn't it? Okay, I don't think anybody's so trying to defeat story. anybody. So, so I yeah. got to the end of February. My illness was getting worse. I remember my birthday, the 16th of February. Um, I had not been able to write or use a keyboard without an incredible amount of pain for a long time. Mm. And I'd had a business prior to that, mainly consultancy in media. I'd formerly been a journalist and marketing and PR and stuff. And my birthday, the final one of the four or five of my clients um, ended their contract with me. Basically, I hadn't been able to work through the illness. I'd been so ill, heavily fatigued, in pain, on all this medication. Uh, and on my birthday, basically, my last of my big clients. So I was very unhappy. I was on the phone to a talk radio show who were talking about Wuhan and COVID and my ears started bleeding while I was on the phone to the BBC. Oh my now God. my nose had been bleeding before, my gums had been bleeding, all of which had been infected. And I was literally on this phone call giving an interview to the BBC and my ears started bleeding. And all I could feel was like a warm sort of trickle of something on the side of my face. And obviously I went to wipe it and saw my hand covered in blood. And I made a joke of it because I was on live radio and I said, oh, my God, my ears are bleeding. And at the time, all I could do was think that it was probably this early stage blood cancer because that was the only thing that possibly anybody could see at the time. And I just remembered that. I just clicked that. And I remember phoning my GP and emailing my GP almost every single day from the 16th of February onwards to the first second week of March and not getting replies and getting you know, brushed off and getting told I was, you know, a hypochondriac and getting told it was all in my mind and getting told it was anxiety and psychosis and mental health and all these things. And every day I would get up and my left ankle almost broke in my head. The pain was bad. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't wait on it. I couldn't walk. I live on my own because I've just gone through a divorce. I'm in a place where I can't even, I couldn't brush my teeth. My hands were so cramped up and the fingers were crossed over each other. I couldn't brush my teeth. I couldn't cut a vegetable. I couldn't mm. do a bra strap up. I couldn't do anything. I had all my hair cut off. I went from long, dark hair halfway down my mids to a shaven grade four hair because I couldn't hold a hairdryer or a hairbrush or anything. I had no option. I had to do it. So at that point, I spoke to my father, told him what was going on. And my father said to me, you've got internetitis, which I didn't take very well, as you can imagine, because right. he, was, he was literally saying I was inventing it all. My brother was a little bit more accommodating and slightly concerned. But, you know, my friends around me had left me because they thought I'd infected them with H1N1. I had nobody. I was so alone. I was ill. I was bleeding. I was full of infection. My doctors had started to ignore me. I, I just at that stage really started panicking because all I could see on the television was this virus, which had all the symptoms that I had and nobody was believing me. And at that stage, all I could do really was try and contact other people. So at that point, I reached out to people in the US and Canada and Italy and Germany. And I literally used every social media, every contact I could think of. And thank goodness I found people in other parts of the world like me that were suffering, like me, who were not believed, like me. And I mm. started to hang on to these people and the scientists and I started to teach myself some of the stuff and I started to teach myself virology and epidemiology and hematology and my own hematologist said to me you've got 
a viral illness. There is nothing to do with cancer. There's nothing cancerous in you. And of course, at the time, I thought, what a load of rubbish. I'm so ill. This can't be a virus. But it then got to the stage where we locked the UK down. And so from early March all the way through until the end of May, I was on my own. I didn't see a doctor. I didn't speak to a doctor. You were all terrified to go into hospitals, as you can remember. Even thinking I may have cancer, I didn't want to go and have any diagnostics because you were too afraid. You didn't know what to do. It was very severe. Um, what was it like in the US then when you locked down April, May? Were you scared? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, there was a fear. And, and, you know, everybody, even people who needed cancer treatment or diabetes, weren't going to hospital. So... I was getting iller. I literally went out and I bought a blood pressure monitor, a blood sugar monitor, um, an oxometer. My blood oxygen was dropping down to the 60s. Now, blood oxygen should be at least sort of 90, 95. My blood oxygen levels were coming down 79, 74, 68. This is called hypoxia. You feel happy. You feel you're OK. You feel you're all right. But your blood oxygen is so low that the amount of oxygen that is going into the organs of your body is too low that your organs start failing. Your organs start giving up on you. And I started reading accounts in The New York Times and The Washington Post about a, you know, a woman whose heart literally exploded because it hadn't had the right amount of blood going into it. And I started reading all these horrific things worldwide in Italy. I'm in panic. I live on my own. I think I've got this virus. Nobody believes me. I've got all these monitors. My blood was dropping up, down, up, down. I was passing out in a diabetic type, what, oh, I don't know the name for it, a sort of diabetic coma. I was going into rigors oh and tremors. Um, but I was still terrified to leave the house because of COVID. And nobody would believe me. So I got in contact with Porton Down, the government's uh, laboratory in the UK, and they tested my blood and they found yellow fever. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. You didn't expect that. And neither did I. Um, they said that was some sort of weird thing. I shouldn't worry about it. But then I said, well, can you test for you know, COVID? And they said, well, no, we can't. We haven't got the test yet. So I had to go through until May, June, until I got the proper tests oh and the God. antibodies and all the rest of it. Um, but obviously, by that point, I'm fully aware, along with many other people in the world, that I've got COVID. But clearly, nobody believes that I've then had it three or four months by that point. And then suddenly, I got very ill. I don't know what triggered it. I suddenly dropped. One day... I started bleeding very easily from little cuts and getting bruises all over me, which I put down to a blood cancer type thing. I was still weak. I couldn't walk properly. I couldn't use my hands. My headaches were intense. I couldn't see a lot. I'd lost most of my eyesight. Um, I couldn't taste, couldn't smell. Um, I had ear infections, back in, uh, kidney infections. And then suddenly one day, my elbow started bleeding very slightly from dry skin. thought nothing of it. Within three hours, a lump the size of a tennis ball had grown on my elbow. I had no idea what wow. it was. I didn't, I didn't want to contact the hospital. But I went next door because my neighbours are GPs, they're doctors. And I looked at them and jokingly sort of put my arm up. And the GP looked at me and went, oh, my God, you need rapid antibiotics that could get septic as it did so within uh, two hours of seeing him I'd taken some antibiotic he gave me but I couldn't breathe my breathing became really difficult it occurred to me it was probably going to be sepsis I phoned 999 a journalist friend of mine I'd been talking to on zoom phone 999 the paramedics arrived and all over my house were loads and loads of papers about covid papers with these other people I'd made contact with across the world. So my house looked like a COVID laboratory. Paramedics um, <laughs> walked in, hooked me up to an ECG. And I have forgotten to tell you, but when I got that ill on my birthday, the February the 16th, I gave up. I signed a DNR. I signed a do not uh. resuscitate. And because my father and my brother didn't seem to care and didn't believe me, I also did my will. So I had a living will and a do not resuscitate order which meant that when the paramedics arrived because of that sort of sepsis bursitis on the 6th of June, they couldn't resuscitate me. 
and I was struggling to breathe. And it's the most frightening thing I've ever had. Really the most frightening thing I've ever had. I felt each part of my body go numb and tingly. And I knew I was mm. losing my oxygen. I was losing the ability to breathe properly. And they couldn't do anything because they weren't legally allowed to do anything. And long story short, um, they made me cough hard to get my chest or my heart or my resuscitation started. So I had a beep, 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 beep. Whenever it got to a, I could hear this beeping, this flat line. I was half in and out of consciousness and I had to cough, oh, hard, cough my way out of my own flat line experience. And I had uh, some horrific as a result of that. I went into hospital, I came out. Luckily I was looked after. Two days later, my front door knocked. And I opened my front door and there were three or four people standing on my doorstep in PPE, stroke hazmat, no idea who they were. And they said, can we come in please? We're from the mental health service. Basically my GP had not believed or even read through a lot of the stuff from the hospital and the paramedics. And she was going to section me under the mental health act. So on my doorstep were psychiatrists that had been called in and there was a van parked outside my house. And these mental health wow. psychiatrists, people came into my house, sat down on my settee and said, you've got 10 minutes to pack a bag. We're taking you to somewhere safe. Huh. Oh, God. Oh, my now, God. Time, That's out of a movie. It is out of a movie. And initially I laughed. I laughed. I thought, look, I've just been through a near-death experience. I'm lucky to be alive. Surely this is some sort of weird joke. And I realized very quickly this was not a joke. These were absolutely serious. And I had 10 minutes to prove to them that I was sane and that the whole of this horrible illness that I had was a proper physical illness, not some psychotic disorder. And so obviously in quick succession, within five or six minutes, I explained everything, told them I was a former journalist. I was reading and writing about COVID. I've been studying it because nobody believed I had it, blah, blah, blah. They went, they left. And the ne next day I got a letter from my GP who sacked me from the doctors. I got a letter from the NHS in England at director level. I got a letter from the Public Health England all saying that I was sacked and they would not be giving me free health care in the UK um, wow. as a result of complaints made because I was obsessed with COVID and I thought I had COVID and clearly this wasn't possible, blah, blah, blah. The irony of it, I then got the apologies when I tested positive for it. By which time I'd had to find another doctor in another hospital and gone on another waiting list. And fortunately, other people, and well, fortunately, unfortunately for them, by March, April, a lot of people in the UK had COVID. And so I wasn't alone. And I joined yeah. a group of people that believed me. And, you know, they literally were lifesavers because I was sitting in my house fucking suicidal, suicidal. My father, my brother did not believe me. My doctors didn't believe me. They were trying to put me in a mental institution. I was so ill, I could barely walk. I'd lost so much weight. I could barely swallow. I could barely breathe some days. And I gave up on life. I gave up. Understandably. My God. Yeah. And that was June, July. And this is before. So, you know, long story short, between July and December of last year, the support groups for long COVID, the people worldwide that came forward, the scientists, the doctors, the medical institutions and the universities that approached me and then have started using me as effectively, I'm mean, like a medical guinea pig. I've been used by universities as a test subject now. Right. They saved my life because without people actually believing you, there is no need. There is no sense in, for me, as a very intellectual person who was successful, who, who had always proven herself and always been popular, I'd suddenly become a nobody who was laughed at and ridiculed. 
And the mental health aspects of it then became almost more threatening to my life than the physical aspects. But um, I continued to have, you know, hospital visits in and out. I had small um, strokes, heart attacks. The sepsis reoccurred. It came in the other elbow. Um, and oh basically, I've been, I've been ill pretty much ever since. To a literal extent, because now as more people have, have got involved, there's more knowledge about vitamins and more knowledge about supplements there's more knowledge about what to do and how similar it might be to various other illnesses i mean the bottom line is this thing is like a fire breathing dragon inside you and it inflames everything so when you lose your taste and your smell and your eyesight and everything else it's because all the neurological network of your body is blowing up like a hot red balloon your blood is like molten lava pumping through you it becomes thick my plasma viscosity readings were off the scale you have this thick gloopy blood your body is like a computer and your body decides the priorities right we need to get blood to the heart blood to the kidneys blood to the liver and it shuts down other parts of you so the mm -hmm. reason some days that we can't walk or we don't feel our left foot or we have numbness in our right hand or we can't suddenly remember something is neurological damage caused by gross inflammation and swelling to the body as the body is trying to keep the major organs going but is failing on other parts. And the jabbing, stabbing pains where you feel like somebody's got a knife and is absolutely attacking you are sort of false synapse chemical reactions where the whole of the brain is going into a panic of sugar, I've got to get blood there, I've got to push sugar here, I've got to put salt there, I've got to do this. And this chaotic panic that is going on in your head like a computer causes these irreverent, complex, bizarre, physical symptoms and it's no wonder that you know the medical fraternity has freaked out it's nothing yeah. it's nothing like anything they've seen before and i've got a dry yeah. mouth now so i'm gonna take a drink yeah. <laughs> um yeah uh, have, now have you heard uh, i've i heard uh, in the last couple minutes i heard our connection kind of like crackle up a couple times did you hear that on your end at all no, it seems fine, my end. It's all being clear. Okay. It's probably just because we're uh, going international here. But yeah, it looks like we got a message. You want to hit that? Uh, hit the next oh, message sorry. there. Hey, what's up, Money Penny? What's up, David? What's up, guys? Hope your broadcast what's going goes on? well. Hey, Thanks, true. Buddy. Thank you for listening in. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. So Greetings, fellow Earthlings, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of And Another Thing with Dave. We're going to continue this topic tomorrow, so please tune in at the same time. And remember, if you dig what I'm doing, please do share with friends.